All right, let's get rolling. Uh, This month we're focusing on prayer. Specifically, we're asking, what does it mean to prevail in prayer? That's an old-fashioned word, prevail, and we don't use it very much anymore, but we're using it this week because it it really means so much. It's It's a phrase that describes what prayer can be and what it should be. Uh, prayer should be something that is vital. And the question is, is it vital to you? Is, is prayer something that is vital and life-giving to you? Is, is your place of prayer a, a place where you continually long to return to? Do you experience their sweet fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Do you pour out your soul to God there in prayer, knowing knowing that he's hearing you, not feeling like it's just hitting the ceiling or you're speaking into the great void, but knowing that he's hearing you, do you see God change things that you bring to him in prayer? That's what it means to prevail in prayer. Or is prayer something that for you is dull and lifeless? If it is, let's just be honest. Probably for most of us in this room, it probably is or has been. Do you feel silly as you begin to open your mouth and pray? Whether alone or in public, do you just feel like this is silly? Or or prayer, maybe it's perhaps a reminder of just how poorly you're performing in your Christian walk. Like, I I know I should pray, but it's so dull and dry to me that I, I try it, I fail, I give it a minute or two, I give it 30 seconds, I throw up a quick prayer in the car, and I, but it, it just feels dull and dry and lifeless, and then I feel guilty, and, which further causes you not to want to pray, and it just creates like this cycle that you just fall into of just prayer is dull and lifeless, and then you feel guilty that it's dull and lifeless, so then you don't pray, and then it's dull and lifeless, and it just continues. But here's the truth. Prayer can be something different for you. It can be meaningful and powerful for you, not just for super-Christian. For you, it can be meaningful and powerful. It can change you. It can change your family. Prayer can change a city. It can change our church. As we see in this passage, Jesus even says it can move mountains. So let's see what led up to this moment for Jesus to say, if you pray, if you say to this mountain, move, it shall be thrown into the sea. It's the day after Palm Sunday, and Jesus, when he, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the back of a donkey, the praise of the crowds and the concern of the religious leaders standing by, and now Mark tells us in verse 11 that he, he gets into town in Jerusalem. It's already late, so he takes a look. This is key. He takes a look around the temple, and he sees the state of the temple. This is the holiest week, the holiest time of the year for the Jews. And he looks around the temple and he sees, we know what he sees because he comes back the next day. He sees all the money, money lenders' cha- tables around. He sees the people who are buying and selling wares. He sees all their tables around set up ready for the day of business the next day. And it does something in them. And he goes back just outside of town and he stays in a, a little town called Bethany just outside Jerusalem, probably with Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And then he gets to the next morning and on his way into Jerusalem, it tells us this in Mark 11, verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, that's Jesus, was hungry. Apparently, I don't know, Mary, maybe Mary and Martha and Lazarus were one of these, like, we don't eat breakfast people, like, 
I travel sometimes with uh, Meg and I with, with Dale and Keetra. They're like, a, oh, we'll just eat a, a little protein bar for breakfast kind of people. And I'm like, that's, that's not breakfast. But there's a lot of people like that. We, we once, Meg and I used to do youth ministry and our, our leader, the guy who's my mentor, he didn't do breakfast. And so when we go, we'd take like 40, 50 kids on a trip. He wouldn't schedule any time for breakfast because he didn't think people actually ate it. And maybe Mary and Martha and Lazarus were not breakfast kind of people. And Jesus wakes up, he leaves their house and he's hungry. And he's walking along and he sees a fig, a fig tree. Now it's early in the season for the fig tree to actually have leaves. And this side of the mountain, it would be temperate enough that the, the, this fig tree had already sprouted leaves. Now this is important because by this point, if, if, you, if you see a fig tree in leaf, that means something has already happened. Because the first thing that grows on a fig tree when it starts to wake up in the spring is these, these, little, these little buds, these little things that could become, if they don't fall off, these little things that could become figs. They're the first thing that show up these immature figs, and then it breaks out into leaf, and then later on, there'll be fully mature figs there. Now, Mark tells us something interesting. He says, now, it wasn't the season for figs. One time, Meg and I went to a Thai place. We like Thai food, and, and uh, we tried several times to order a meal or order a dish that had mango in it, and they kept telling us with sterner and sterner words, mango is not in season. Mango is not in season. So Jesus walks up and he sees this tree. And it's this, Mark tells us now, Jesus is hungry. He goes to look at the tree, even though figs are not in season. So why did he do that? Now, you can eat, if the buds are there, you can eat those buds, but they're not very tasty. But Jesus walks up and he looks and he sees there's no figs on the tree. Now, we don't have time. And, he's, and he says this. He, he says to this tree, almost like in a passing comment, like something like you and I would say, like when you pull up to Chick-fil-A and they're out of chicken, like how can you be out of chicken? You, know, you pull up to Chick-fil-A and you order chicken nuggets, or you order whatever, and you ask for it. I, you know, you wouldn't do this because it's a Christian company, but let's make it, let's make McDonald's. We drive to McDonald's and they're, they don't have ice cream. And you mutter under your breath as you drive away from the, the ordering station, may you never serve ice cream again. That's what Jesus says to this tree. May you never serve fruit. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Then he goes into town. And we don't have time to talk about this passage, but it's important to understand what's going on. This is whenever he shows up to Jerusalem. He shows up to the temple. And in verse, 19, verse 13, it says, verse 15, it says, he showed up to the temple. He sees all the money changers and the lenders and the salespeople there. And it says he entered the temple and he alone began to drive out all those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Can you imagine what kind of fury the Son of God must have had in that place to by himself chase them all out? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. We go back to Bethany, and then the next morning is the passage that was read for us. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away all the way down to its roots. And Peter says, Rabbi, teacher, look, 
the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him. He doesn't say, wow, that's amazing. He says, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, that they're on a mountain, who says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. I'm going to say it again. I want you all to say it with me this time. It will be done for him. But whoever, whoever believes that what he says will come to pass, say it with me, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever, whatever, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, why would Jesus have this response to this tree? When Mark tells us figs are not in season, why? would he have this response to this tree? Why would he curse this tree so much so that when they walk past 24 hours later, it's not just kind of dull, it is withered all the way down to its roots or from the root all the way up. Why would he do that? Now, some people have puzzled this passage because it seems like Jesus is kind of petty or it seems like Jesus is being vindictive or even selfish. But actually what's happening, remember the whole picture of what's going on. He's going into Jerusalem. He sees the temple. He sees the money changers. He is angry at what they have done, what the Jews have done with what was meant to be a house of worship, a house of prayer, a house where God's presence dwelt among his people. Prophets had used before, years before, the picture of a fig tree that wasn't bearing figs as what the people of Israel had become. He's hungry, yes, but remember, he turned water into wine and fed 5,000 people with a boy's lunch. It's not because he can't find breakfast or get breakfast for himself. It's not just because Martha and Mary and Lazarus weren't breakfast people. It's not just because he's angry. He walks into this tree when, it's, when figs are not in season. He finds no figs, and he uses this moment to make a point. Here's Jesus, he's been acclaimed by the fickle crowds who are going to turn against them. He's, been, he's despised by the religious leaders who are waiting for him to come in the city, who are already plotting his death. He sees the state of the temple, he sees it's turned into a carnival, and he's on his way back into town when he's going to clean out the temple with a holy fury. He sees this fig tree in full leaf but fruitless like the people who were called by his name, and he uses this moment to illustrate a point. And what does Jesus do? You know what he does? He wows his disciples with his power and his authority. He wows his disciples with his power and his authority. He curses the fig tree with a comment, almost a side comment. May you never bear fruit again. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then he proceeds in Jerusalem and cleans out the temple that was meant to be a holy place and a house of prayer, that was meant to bear fruit and be an example of God's presence and God's glory for the nations. He comes in, he cleans out the temple with such a holy fury that no one can stand in his way. He exercises his power and his authority. And the next day, Peter notices the, trick, the fig tree, it's withered all the way down to its roots. Why did he do it? 
He did it to show that the, the true king of all kings and the Lord of all lords had shown up. He did it to stir awe. When we say awe, what that means is reverence and fear. We were talking with some friends last night. We were at a, a, a birthday dinner, and we were talking about my fear of heights. I showed them the most terrifying video that I know of of a man climbing a 2,000-foot antenna to change a light bulb at the top. I hope that man gets paid a million dollars a day. <laughs> I was looking at it on my little phone. If you're like, hey, I'd like to try that. For me, I was looking at it on my phone at the table, and I could feel my stomach doing flutters just looking at it on my phone. That's what awe is. Awe is whenever you're in the presence of something that is a little bit, afraid, a little bit fearful, maybe a lot fearful, something that is bigger than you, that is awe-inspiring to you, that reminds you, he, God alone, is big, and in comparison, I am small. He did it to stir awe and to inspire faith. He says, hey, because I am here and you see how powerful I am, you should be stirred with awe and yet you should also have faith in me because I am the one that holds all power and all authority. And Jesus does that. Jesus does things just in order to stir awe and inspire faith in our hearts. When we tend to forget, Jesus likes to show up and show his power. When, when, when we ignore him, sometimes the Lion of Judah likes to roar to, to make us remember who is in control. When we think that we're fine without him, he does something to shake us out of our slumber. But the question is, does your Jesus do that? Does your Jesus do that? Is the Jesus that you follow unpredictable and all-powerful? Remember, like C.S. Lewis said, he's not a tame lion. He is good, but he's not tame. He is the Lord of all creation. Does Jesus ever cause your knees to tremble? Does, does he ever correct or discipline you? Or, does the, or is the Jesus that you follow a domesticated, God-like figure? Someone that you like to keep on a leash. See, it's easy to think that you want a pocket Jesus. A Jesus that you can pull out whenever you need him and slip back in whenever you don't. A Jesus that isn't weird to the world, that doesn't make you weird, that doesn't make you stand out. A Jesus that doesn't challenge you or scare you in any way. But truth is, Actually, none of us really want that. We think we do, but all of us desire a God that is worthy of wonder. It's just that we shrink back because we're afraid. We're afraid of having our lives rearranged because that kind of Jesus can command us, the kind of Jesus that can command the fig tree to wither to its root in 24 hours. And, and may, you know what I think? I think by the time they turned this around the corner, that tree had already withered. It doesn't matter if it did. It was dead already, whether or not. 
The kind of Jesus that command the, the fig tree to wither, the kind of Jesus that can, that can drive the money changers and clear out the temple, the kind of Jesus that command the storm to stop and it will immediately or who can walk on water, the kind of Jesus that can call the dead back from the grave for four days, that kind of Jesus, if he calls us, we know that our lives will have to be rearranged. We're afraid of being called out because that kind of Jesus can call us out and say, what are you doing? We're afraid of not being in control because that kind of Jesus is the kind of Jesus who is in control of all things. That means there's no control left for you and me. We're afraid of our sin. because That kind of Jesus is holy. You don't know what I've done. Or he knows what I've done and I, that's why I can't go to him. We're afraid of being seen. Afraid of being rejected. Afraid of being disappointed. What's the antidote for that fear? The antidote for that fear is to see Jesus in his power and in his love. You see, the thing that caused, imagine this, the disciples walk you in Jesus and all of a sudden they see and they realize, hey, this man that we've been following, I think they kept seeing this at times, hey, this man that we're following is not just a prophet. The Lord of creation spoke to that tree and it withered from the ground, from the root up. And the God who dwells inside the Holy of Holies walked into that temple and cleared the space out and he declared it to be his space. But the thing that inspired awe, not just fear, like my fear of heights, but the thing that inspired awe and not just fear is because they saw the motivation behind Jesus' action was love. He cleared out the temple because he said this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all people. My, the Jews and Gentiles are supposed to be able to come here into the temple and see and know that I am real and that I will hear them and I will move upon their behalf. Judaism was meant to be a beautiful picture of God's rule and reign that would bless all the nations. It was meant to be fruitful, to nourish people and to sustain people and to provide hope, just like that tree was meant to provide figs for whoever passed by. And he, the Lord of all creation, showed up and he said, no, this will be a house of prayer for all people. Do you see Jesus in both his power and his love? Do you see him in his power and his love? Do you see him? Those who are looking, those who have eyes to see it, it is everywhere. It is all over creation. His power and his love is stamped upon creation. His power is shown in that storm that we had the other night, in the amazing wind and lightning and rain. He is shown in that. It is shown in the waves that continue to crash and crash and crash upon the shore. He's shown in the incredible mountains and the sunset and the birth of a child. It is shown, his love is shown that the rain falls upon the just and the unjust. And those who are just and unjust see the beautiful sunset. God's creation shows his power and his love. 
Jesus and his miracles show God's power and his love. He shows up and he turns water into wine. He calls the dead to life. He frees people from the bondage of sin and slavery. He, he sends those who are lame, walking and leaping and praising God. He calls out the dead. He heals the sick. He calms and declares the one who created the heavens and earth is here to make all things right. Again, I am powerful and I'm loving and he continues to do so in miracle after miracle after miracle today. It is easy to see for those who have eyes to see it. Do you see Jesus and his love and his power upon the cross? Do you see him walking to the cross bearing your sin and my sin, bearing your shame and my shame, taking your place and my place and bearing it strongly and proudly with love in his eyes and joy in his heart? It says that he bore the cross with a joy that was set before him. He had joy, even though it was incredible agony, he sweated blood, even though it was a horrible place to be. It says that he had a joy that was set before him to please the Father and to draw you and me back to himself. Do you see his power and his love? Do you see his power and his love evident in his powerful resurrection? The grave couldn't hold him. Death could not keep him in. The thing that you and I dread and fear above all things, Things. He demonstrated his mastery and his power, and he didn't, just, he didn't just escape from it, but he destroyed the pangs of death for everyone who would follow him. Do you see his power and his love? Do you see it in the way that he continues to speak to you and lead you and guide you? Do you see it in your salvation, how he drew you to himself and called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Do you see his love and his power? This is the Jesus who inspired the disciples after Pentecost to pray great prayers and to do great exploits. This is the Jesus Christian who is risen for you. This is the Jesus who says, have faith in God. You see, it's not just enough to see Jesus and his power. The disciples had done that. They'd seen it over and over again. They knew about him. They knew what he had done, but Jesus was looking for more. Do you hear? Jesus in his life, he continually is looking. He is inviting them into more. He is looking for faith, and he's inviting people into faith. This is what you should hear whenever he says, have faith in God. You should hear from him inviting you into more. That statement is a, an encouragement, it's an invitation. He's saying this, hey, do you marvel at what I can do with horticulture? That I can call this, curse this tree and it withers? Do you marvel at that? I want you to understand who I am. I want you to understand what it means that I have come to you, that I will die and rise for you. I, I'm bringing you back into the family of God. I'm placing my name upon you. I will be, listen to this, I will be. This is his message to you. I am in you and you will be in me. Your fellowship with me will be real and it will be deep. I will give you my words. Over time, I will give you my heart. I want you to see, he's saying, I want you to see my power and my love, but then I want you to see your position in me. I want you to live like it. I want you to pray like it. That's what he's saying when he says, have faith in God. 
Jesus is continually looking for those who have faith. He commends those who have it. He exhorts those who don't. He's, he's looking for bold faith, those who will know who he is, his power and his love, and their position in him. And he makes some pretty big promises. He makes some pretty big promises to those who, who trust in his power and his love and their position upon, in him. He says, you will speak to this mountain and it'll move. Faith is enticing. When, when Jesus exhibited here on the road, the disciples wanted to know more about it. Faith is in a person. He says, have faith in God. Have faith in me, in the person of Jesus. Don't have faith in some concept of God. Don't just have faith in my disembodied word as if my word is separate from me. Have faith in me, in who I am. I have shown you my power and my love. Have faith in me. Faith, that kind of faith that sees God and his power and his love and our position in him considers the power of God more than other truth. What is other truth? How can a mountain move? How can a mountain move? The truth is it's impossible. A mountain is immovable. But the person who comes fresh from the presence of Christ knows that there's a greater truth in the fact that mountain can't move. That there's the creator who formed it with his word, who holds it together now by the word of his power. And if he but speaks, anything is possible. Faith considers the love of God more than doubt. Did you hear that? He talks about doubt in this passage. He says, those who, who, who say and do not doubt, this shall be done for you. But faith considers the love of God more than our doubts. Now, Jesus acknowledges that we'll struggle with doubt. So if you struggle with doubt, hey, just be open and honest with the Lord today. I struggle with doubt. But what is it that drives out doubt? Again, knowing that love, God loves and cares for you. It is powerful enough to do anything that you and I need to be done. That's why doubt is so debilitating to us. Because doubt comes in at a heart level and, and is not just doubting, can that mountain theoretically move? It's not about whether the mountain can theoretically move or not. We want to have arguments about that. The, tr what, the doubt comes in at a heart and says, God actually doesn't love or care for you enough to make it move. It causes us to doubt the reality and the character of God. But here, hear this. It doesn't mean that we're disqualified if we doubt. It just gives us hope there's, there's a way out of our doubts. Or more appropriately, there's a, there's a, there's a saying that a, a guy used to say that faith is the boot that holds down doubt. Like a picture of a serpent, like a snake. Faith is the boot. It doesn't, may not always do away with it, but it holds it down and keeps it in its place. Faith believes and trusts, considers the love of God more than doubts. And faith grows. That should be encouragement for you this morning. Jesus acknowledges that the disciples 
aren't where they should be. But they don't have to stay there. He offers a picture of what he has in store for them. If you will have faith in me, if you will see my power and my love and your position in me, you can grow. Your faith can grow. And he says that the greatest way that faith shows itself is in prayer. John Calvin said, the chief exercise of faith is prayer. The chief exercise of faith is prayer. Is, does it mean that we, we, we don't act? Yes, we act. James said, faith without works is dead. But the first impetus of faith is not for us to go do something, but for us to implore God to do something. Because faith is not trusting that something can happen. It's trusting that God is powerful and caring and he can and will do it for me because I am his beloved child in Christ. Faith operates through prayer. It's less about what we can do than what God can do. Faith believes enough to ask. Faith believes enough to ask. It's rooted in the conviction that God fully intends that to answer his, the prayer that Jesus taught us, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And faith asks, believes enough to ask God, cause your kingdom to come on earth, cause your will to be done in this situation, and I know that you are the only, only source of good and of power. As we wrap up, faith asks for a definite object. Many of us lose interest in prayer because we don't have any real purpose there. We never ask for anything specific because we're afraid we won't get it. We're afraid it's not his will. We're afraid we're going to be disappointed. We don't want to be embarrassed. We never wrestle with God in our requests. But if you, if you come into prayer with a growing sense, a growing knowledge that I am loved by God. He is all-powerful, and in Christ, I am his son in the same position as Christ is before the Father. Then even when I pray and ask a, a specific request, when it doesn't yet, I don't yet see an answer, it still trusts that God will either grant that request or he will work in me and tell me what he is doing like a father to his son or to his daughter. What's the mountain before you? What does it seem impossible and immovable to you? What is it that seems to block, the picture of a mountain that seems to block God's work in your life? What does it seem to be the biggest thing standing before you in fulfilling God's will? Is it a continual sin that you've even stopped giving up asking about because I just know I cannot ever get beyond this. Is it doubt itself? I'm so plagued by doubt. I don't even know if this thing is real anymore. I don't know if God is real anymore. Is it a family member? 
the situation in your marriage, your child? Is it your parents? Is it someone who's far from God, someone who once walked with him, but now they're running away? Is it that relationship that you just can't get over? Is it a sickness? This morning, do you hear the voice of God speaking faith to your heart? Do you hear God speak to you this morning and saying, nothing can stand before me. My child, nothing can block my work. I am all powerful and I am all loving. Nothing can stand in your way. Nothing can stand in my way. Just ask me. Ask your father. Speak to the mountain. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Believe that you've already received it. Believe that God heard you before you finished your prayer. Believe that he loves you more than you can imagine. Believe that he is more powerful than anything else. Let God's love and power push out your doubt. Let the promises of his word be the basis of your requests. Ask him for something specific. Believe that it is done. Trust God to move. Then act like it is. Father, we come before you this morning. Most of us, maybe all of us in some way, we come this morning saying, oh Lord, we are so besieged with doubt. We're so trained to look around us. We're so trained to look at the mountain and see it is immovable, impassable, impossible. We're so prone to forget your power and your love is shown to us in Jesus Christ. And we come with open hands this morning. We ask, would you remind us, Lord? Would you remind us of your power and your love? Would you stir us to see our acceptance in you and to ask bold prayers, trusting that you will answer whatever we ask? In the name of Jesus we pray.